recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Well, while we, um, well, we had a, a big problem with TalkShoe last night, so I'm glad to see that it's back to normal tonight. Well, we did learn that we can indeed do a program on Christogenia, well, which I, I had boasted a few weeks ago that we could do that, but uh, I hadn't actually tried it until last night when, when, um, when we had to do it. So, so it worked out well. We had 26 listeners live, which isn't a lot, but, but it's um, more, than, more than I could have expected after um, a 40-minute delay and, and asking people to leave here and go to Christagenier. And, and, and it was a troll-free environment, so, so that was nice. So it, it worked out well. And, and um, while I could move this program to Christagenia and any, at any time I have the capability to do that, I would much rather keep the public face here on TalkShoe and um, try to attract new listeners and, and new people to our common cause. So, so I think that's better to, to um, have that wider dragnet, so to speak, and that higher visibility with um, people that don't know about my websites. So, so that's my endeavor anyway. Okay, tonight I'm going to present a slightly expanded version of a paper I wrote about four years ago. I wrote this paper four years ago this very month. Today I shall add quite a bit of rhetoric to it because now more than ever we must ask ourselves the question, should Christians embrace the Jews? And this is a question that we can't let escape the public arena. Of course, Christians should not brace the Jews, right? It's a rhetorical question. Of course, the answer is no. We know that mainstream Christianity is still oblivious to that question. That they, they accept the Jews with open arms because they're God's chosen people. And, and that's, of course, all horseshit. And, and, and um, it, it's just Jewish propaganda that the Jews developed. The New Testament scriptures clearly place the blame for the crucifixion of Christ. And, and, and this, you know, history transcends that, and, and we'll get to that. But the New Testament scriptures clearly place the blame for the crucifixion of Christ and the early persecution of Christians on the Jewish people. However, lately, many so-called churches have begun to deny these scriptures, choosing instead to cater to their Jewish masters. Yes, by kowtowing to the Jews, they have exchanged the truth for lies. They have exchanged Christ for Satan. Tonight, we shall establish that fact. This is from a March 2011 Time article, Time magazine article entitled, Why the Pope's Rejection of Jewish Blame Matters. And I quote, When Pope Benedict XVI, I, I hate to use that title, but I, I, I have to so people understand what I'm talking about. Well, when Pope Benedict XVI writes that the Jews were not responsible for the death of Jesus, what's more important is less the passage itself than the man who set it down on paper. By tackling the subject in a book to be published March 10th, Benedict, who has struggled in his relations with the, Jew with the Jewish community, doesn't so much state something new. 
the affirmation that the Jewish people as a whole were not responsible for the crucifixion is an old one, uncontroversial in the modern Catholic Church. And, and I should interject that that's very much to its discredit. As when the idea that the ecclesiastical equivalent of a celebrity endorsement. The significance is in the author, says Joseph Caesars, professor of Jewish history at the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome. He brings together an awareness of the issues in the texts themselves, and, and we'll see how the texts refute the Pope, with the history of how these texts have been interpreted over, through the last 2,000 years. Indeed, the Catholic Church has considered the Jewish people free from blame since at least 1965. Well, well what, happened? What, what made them change their minds after 1,935 years is beyond me, except for Jewish money, influence, and power. When the Second Vatican Council wrote that while the Jewish authorities and those who followed their lead pressed to the death of Christ, still what happened in his passion cannot be charged against all the Jews without distinction, then alive, nor against the Jews of today. Well, well, yes, it can. According to the gospel, it can, and it should be. And we will see why. We will see why tonight. The last paragraph that I will quote of this Time Magazine article says, the difference this time is that rather than being buried deep in a document of dense text, where it can easily be overlooked or ignored, the argument is being laid out by a man whose every word is poured over as an indication of church doctrine. Most, now, now, this is true. Most Catholics don't read the church's documents, says Rabbi David Rosen, director of interreligious affairs at the New York-based American Jewish Committee. The book will certainly be far more widely read. Benedict's most recent book, Jesus of Nazareth, I'm sure that's a novel, was a bestseller when it was published in 2007. The passage about the crucifixion will appear in its sequel, Jesus of Nazareth Holy Week, from the entrance into Jerusalem to the resurrection. It, it's a shame that people read that trash at all, because um, it, it's quite clear that Benedict, Benedict is perverting scripture and history to try to let the Jews off the hook. God Yahweh our God will not let the Jews off the hook. Are the Jews free from blame for the crucifixion of Christ simply because some Vatican council or some pope declares it to be so? Peter is credited in Acts chapter 2 as having said, and I quote Acts 2.22, Men, Israelites, hear these words. Yahshua the Nazorian, a man appointed for you by Yahweh with powers and wonders and signs which Yahweh had done through him in your midst, even as you yourselves know. He, by the appointed will and foreknowledge of Yahweh, was surrendered, who, crucifying through lawless hands, and that's important, through lawless hands, hands outside the law, you, meaning the children of Israel in Palestine at that time, have slain. And, and the nation is responsible for the crucifixion, whether they were Israelites or Edomites, because they all permitted it. And, and that's something we have to understand. It's clear in the scriptures that the Edomite Jew is responsible for the death of Christ, but the nation as a whole bore the responsibility. Just in the same manner that we, in, in a way, bear the responsibility for everything that our evil government does today. 
and, and, and the nation as a whole, even though individuals may not be responsible for it, the nation as a whole certainly is, and, and we all share in that guilt. That's just the way it is. So Peter clearly blames the guilt on the entire nation. Who do the Romish Catholics themselves claim is their founder but Peter? And they prove themselves to be nothing but liars. They are hypocrites. They can't claim Peter as, the, as their founder if they deny Peter's words. And likewise, Paul spoke of those Judeans, and we're going to narrow this down. Likewise, Paul spoke of those Judeans who rejected Christ thusly, and I quote, You have become imitators, brethren, of the assemblies of Yahweh in Judea, which are among the number of Yahshua Christ, because these same things even you have suffered by your own tribesmen, meaning the people of Judea. Likewise, they, I'm sorry, meaning the people of Greece, I'm sorry, Paul's speaking to the Thessalonians. Likewise, they also, by the Judeans, meaning the Christians in Judea, are suffering at the hands of the people of Judea. I'll repeat that. You have become imitators, brethren, of the assemblies of Yahweh in Judea, meaning the Christians in Judea, which are among the number of Christ Yahshua, because these same things, even you have suffered by your own tribesmen, that they were being um, persecuted by the pagans in Greece. Likewise, they also by the Judeans, the Christian assemblies being persecuted by the Judeans in Judea. Those who killed both Prince Yahshua and the prophets and banished us and are not pleasing to Yahweh and contrary to all men, preventing us from speaking to the nations that they would be preserved, for which to fill their errors at all times. But the wrath has come upon them at last. Paul also taught in his epistle to the Hebrews that those who would claim to understand the scripture, which the Jews certainly do claim to do, and reject Christ, condemn themselves, upholding the crucifixion. And I'll quote from Hebrews chapter four, chapter six, verses four through five, where Paul wrote, For it is impossible those once being enlightened, both tasting of the heavenly gift and becoming partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasting the good word of Yahweh and the powers of the coming age, in other words, those who witnessed Christ, knew the gospel, heard the gospel, yet falling away to restore again in repentance, upholding the crucifixion among themselves and making an example of the Son of God. Paul explained in both 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which I've just quoted, and in Romans chapter 16, that the Judeans, I'm sorry, I didn't, I just quoted from 1 Thessalonians. And Romans chapter 16, that the Judeans in control in Jerusalem were indeed Satan. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul explained that it was the man of sin who was sitting in the temple of God pretending to be God. That's what Paul says in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul says in Romans chapter 16, and Paul is writing to the Romans, Paul says that Satan would be crushed under your feet shortly. Ten years later, the Romans 
destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed over a million of the Edomite Jews in Judea. Of course, they didn't wipe them out. We still have them with us today. According to Flavius Josephus, 1.1 million Judeans were killed in the war with the Romans. So Paul wrote, and, and, and he wrote it as a prophecy that Satan would be crushed under their feet shortly. Satan being the opposition, those opposed to Christ, Paul wrote, would be crushed under their feet shortly. Romans 16.20. The Judeans, according to Paul, the Judeans who rejected Christ were indeed Satan, which is precisely what he called them. Romans 16.20. And explained just as much in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Romish church fails to understand that the gospel message of Christ separated Judeans by their nature, as it was designed to do in the first century. For that reason, Christ told certain of the Judeans, as recorded in John chapter 10, verse 25, I have spoken to you, and you do not believe. The works which I do in the name of my Father, these things testify concerning me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and they are not lost forever, and one shall not snatch them from my hand. The Romish church has wrongly taught that the Jews are not the sheep because they do not believe, but rather Christ taught exactly the opposite. Because they are not his sheep, they do not believe. The church says the Jews are not a sheep because they do not believe. Christ says that they don't believe him because they're not his sheep. It's exactly the opposite of what he says is what the church teaches, and that is a sleight of hand. That's a, an old Jewish trick. There is a world of difference between the false church beliefs and what Christ had actually said. Today, the Pope of the Romish Church is beholden to the Jews. As many, but not quite all, of the popes have been for several hundred years now. In his own words and actions, he fully demonstrates this. From a New York Times article dated the evening of April 18, 2008, hours after the event took place, and entitled, Pope Makes First Visit to, U to a U.S. Synagogue. And this is why I wrote this paper. I wrote this paper when I saw this article. And, and it says, Pope Benedict XVI paid a 22-minute visit to the Park East Synagogue, the first papal trip to a United States synagogue, on Friday afternoon, which begins the Jewish Sabbath, right? He presented the synagogue with a replica, so the Pope brought gifts to the synagogue, figured that one out. He presented the synagogue with a replica of a medieval Jewish manuscript from the Vatican Library and received three gifts, a cedar plate, a Passover Haggadah, and a box of matzah. Wonderful. The Pope offered warm remarks and was showered with praise and music. But in a brief three-minute address, he did not address the Holocaust. I guess he was, he was evil for not mentioning the Holocaust in his three-minute speech. 
anti-Semitism or historic tensions between the Jews and the Catholic Church. What's the Pope doing going to a synagogue? He's paying homage. That, that's what he's doing. Well, when, a, when somebody from a foreign, when a dignitary from a foreign country visits you, he's paying homage to you. When the Pope comes here and visits a synagogue, he's paying homage to the Jews. And he brought a gift. How nice of them. I read a similar article a day or two after this was published in the New York Times, and, and that inspired me to write the following essay. Should Christians embrace the Jews? Recently, there was much media chatter concerning the current head of the Romish church, Herr Ratzinger. And, and I don't like to use any of his self-proclaimed titles, but, but I, I, you know, we have to use them so people know what we're talking about. Yet at Matthew um, 23, verses 8 and 9, Christ said, But you should not be called rabbi, meaning teacher, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers, and you shall not call your father upon the earth. We, we shouldn't call any man father, except our, our biological father. For one is your father, the heavenly. The Romish church never quite understood these words. They still don't. And his, his visit to the United States... One of the highlights of his trip was his stop at this New York City synagogue and his embrace of the Jews there, where he gave a speech which stressed the so-called Jewish roots of Jesus Christ and of Christianity, which wasn't mentioned by the New York Times article. Yet nothing could be further from the truth. In reality, which reality shall continue to escape the notice of most people in society, Ratzinger's homage to the Jews of New York surely demonstrates the truth of the New Testament verses, which we see in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, John 14, 30, and 1 Corinthians 2, 8, which I will quote shortly. For those whom we see in positions of authority in this world today are not the true wielders of power, and they never have been. It is the dragon, described in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, Satan, the dragon, which gives authority to the beast, as we see in Revelation chapter 13, verse 4. It's the children of the devil. It's the wicked children. It's the children of those rebellious fallen angels of old, which have been the power behind all world empires. While this statement may seem an enigmatic now, it may become clearer later as this essay proceeds. Let, let me quote Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. This is talking about the devil that meets Christ in the desert. And bringing him, meaning Christ, and bringing him up, he showed him all of the kingdoms of the inhabited earth in a moment of time. Then the devil, or the false accuser, said to him, I will give to you authority over all this and their honor, because to me it was delivered and to whomever I wish I could give it. Therefore, if you would worship before me, it shall all be yours. And replying, Yahshua said to him, It is written, Yahweh your God you shall worship, and you shall serve him only. The words of Christ at John 14.30, No longer shall I discuss many things with you, for the ruler of society, the ruler of this world, comes, and he does not have anything with me. In other words, they have no part with each other. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. Rather, we speak the wisdom of Yahweh that had been hidden in a mystery which Yahweh has predetermined before the ages for our honor, which not one of the governors of this age has known, since if they had known, they would not have crucified the authority of that honor. But just as it is written, things which I did not see and ear did not hear and came not into the heart of man, those things Yahweh has prepared for them that love him, which evidently excludes the Jews. During his earthly ministry, Yahshua Christ continually distinguished himself from the Jews. And there are clear examples of this in the words of Christ, recorded in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 47, where he tells them they did not have the same father as he did, where he tells them that their origin was different than his. And John chapter 10, where he told them that they were not his sheep, that they were not his people. Such distinction is also made by the gospel writers, especially by John, such as John at John 7, 1, where John says that they would not walk among the Jews, that John wrote in a way that indicated that the people of Jewry, the people of Judea, were hostile and alien to him. In order to understand the distinction and the reasons for the division recorded in the New Testament, it is fitting to examine the history of Judea in the period leading up to the birth of Christ. At the time of the birth of Christ, as it's explained in Matthew, Herod and all Jerusalem were troubled, even at the mere announcement of his birth. And they immediately conspired to kill him, rather than rejoice as the Magi and the shepherds did. And we see that in Matthew chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 2. And there are deep, inherent reasons for that. Many centuries before the birth of Christ, from approximately 745 B.C. to 676 B.C., Almost all of the population of ancient Israel and Judah were destroyed or removed to other lands by the invading Assyrians. This is outlined briefly in 2 Kings chapter 17 and 18. Some of it's repeated in 2 Chronicles. The Assyrians left only the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. Ancient Assyrian inscriptions have been found which corroborate the histories of the Bible in those respects. And they corroborate them fully. And show that hundreds of thousands of Israelites were taken and resettled in the north. These Israelites are the lost sheep of Ezekiel chapter 34. That's where the phrase first appears. And they are the subject of many biblical prophecies made even long after their deportation. Yet none of these people were ever called Jews, and therefore they are not the subject of this discussion. Although it surely can be demonstrated that, for the most part, these people developed into the Christian nations of later history. 
By 585 BC, nearly all of those left behind by the Assyrians had been taken away by another invader, by the Babylonians, who destroyed Jerusalem and removed the people to Babylon. That's explained in 2 Kings chapter 25 and in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Of all of these, and there were several hundred thousand of them, only about 40,000 people returned to Jerusalem 70 years later, as recorded by both Ezra and Nehemiah. From these 40,000, some of whom settled in Galilee, Galilee, but most of whom settled in and around Jerusalem, descended Yahshua Christ and the apostles and their countrymen and the Jews of Judea and Jerusalem. Yet it is fully apparent that the Hebrew religion and prophecies of the Old Testament belonged to the much larger group of people, to all those other people who were taken away, to a much larger group of people than only these 40,000. That larger group of people never returned to Judea, and they were never, ever called Jews, which is something quite difficult to discern from all of today's propaganda. In Ezra chapter 10 and Nehemiah chapter 13, we see that these people who returned to Jerusalem soon began intermarrying with the Canaanites, the ancient enemies of Israel, who were accursed by Yahweh, the God of Israel. And upon being admonished and repenting, they put away their foreign foreign wives. This occurred in the 5th century BC, and the Old Testament records end there over 400 years before the birth of Christ. Yet much of this 400 years, which are wanting in our Bibles, are described by secular historians, and especially by the Judean historian Flavius Josephus. From the prophet Ezekiel, Josephus and others, it can be seen that the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, who had Canaanite wives, Genesis chapter 36. Esau had no legitimate descendants. The descendants of Esau had moved into the lands of Simeon and Judah after the Israelites were deported. This is fully evident in Ezekiel chapters 35 and 36, but especially in Ezekiel chapter 35, verses 1 to 10. And in verse 10, Yahweh, the God of Israel, curses Edom. He curses the Edomites, where he says, Because you have said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess it. In other words, the Edomites moved into Israel and Judah after the Israelites and the Judahites were taken away in captivity. By 130 B.C. under the Maccabees, who were the high priests at Jerusalem after the return, The people of Jerusalem had grown quite strong, and after throwing off the yoke of the Greek rulers of Syria, to whom they had been subject, they conquered all of the Canaanites and Edomites, who had inhabited the surrounding areas, and forced them all to convert to the religion of Judah, which was already by this time called Judaism in the Greek and the Roman tongues. And all of those people... Israel's traditional enemies became known as Judeans, and today they are called Jews. Josephus, Antiquities, Book 13, 257-258, and I quote, 
Hyrcanus, Hyrcanus was one of the Maccabees, took also Dora and Marissa, cities of Edomia, and subdued all of the Edomians and permitted them to stay in the country if they would submit to circumcision and make use of the laws of the Judeans. And they were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers that they submitted to the right of circumcision. And the rest of the Jewish or Judean ways of living, at which time, therefore, this befell them, that they were hereafter considered to be Judeans or Jews. Josephus, Antiquities, Book 13, 395 to 397. Now, at this time, the Judeans were in possession of the following cities that had belonged to the Syrians and to the Edomians and to the Phoenicians, the Canaanites and the, and, and the scattered Israelites who mixed in with them, left along the coasts. At the seaside, Stratos Tower, Apollonia, Joppa, Jamnia, Ashdod, Gaza, Anthedon, Raphia, and Rhinocolora. In the middle of the country, near to Edomia, Adorn and Marissa, near the country of Samaria, Mount Carmel and Mount Tabor, Scythopolis and Gadara, of the country of Golanitis, Seleucia, and Gabala. In the country of Moab, Heshbon and Medaba, Lemba and Aronis, Skeleton, Zara, the valley of the Kilekes and Pella, which lastly they utterly destroyed. The, the Maccabees had destroyed Pella. And Josephus says that Pella was destroyed because its inhabitants would not bear to change their religious rights for those particular to the Judeans. The Judeans also possessed others of the principal cities of Syria, which had been destroyed. Now, Josephus says that Pella was destroyed because the inhabitants would not adopt Judaism, just as the cities of Dora and Marissa were compelled to adopt Judaism. Well, that infers that all of those other cities, all filled with Canaanites and Edomites, voluntarily adopted Judaism so that their cities would not be destroyed. That's what the Maccabees were doing. This happened a, 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 approximately 130 B.C. And all of these Edomites and all of these Canaanites and, and there were some remnants of Israel scattered here and there that the Assyrians didn't get, but most of them were mixed or they lost their genealogies. And all of these people were, were um, traditionally rejected by the returnees in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah because they had no genealogies and because most of them were aliens. And all of a sudden, they were all converted to Judaism in 130 B.C. All these mixed races of people were converted to, to the religion of the Judeans in 130 B.C., 160 years before the crucifixion. Once converted to Judaism in practicing circumcision, it became quite easy for the true Israelites of Judea, the descendants of those 40,000 people, to begin intermarrying with the Canaanites and the Edomites of Judea. And this time they did it without any apparent religious guilt or criticism. By 80 BC, many Edomites had gotten themselves into the positions of power and authority in the kingdom of Judea. 
and especially the family of Herod. By 40 B.C., the first Herod, that of Matthew chapter 2, had become the de facto king of Judea, having slain the last of the Maccabees. And being bribed by Herod, Mark Antony persuaded Octavius Caesar in the Roman Senate to make Herod the official king, which happened about 36 B.C. Once Herod became the king, the high priesthood and the other positions of the temple in Jerusalem became political tools. And over the years, many of Herod's friends and kinsmen were granted appointments to the offices in the temple, a practice which continued until the temple was finally destroyed in 70 AD. The pattern that we see of Jewish infiltration of society in our modern times was the same pattern by which the Edomites subverted ancient Judea, which had also been a white nation originally. Understanding the history, and, and that was only a brief rundown, it is evident how the Judeans whom Christ reproved could claim to be Abraham's offspring. In John chapter 8, they did claim to be Abraham's offspring, and Christ agreed that they were Abraham's offspring. Yet Christ denied that they were true children of Abraham because, as Paul explains in Galatians chapter 3, being descendants of Esau, their claim was valid, yet Yahweh, the God of Israel, hates Esau, which he vociferates in, Matthew, in, in Malachi chapter 1. He states that explicitly in Malachi chapter 1. God states that he hates Esau. And Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 9 of that same thing by quoting Malachi chapter 1, where the apostle tells us that not all of those in Israel are of Israel. Paul explicitly, it, it's, it's a little obfuscated in the King James translation, but Paul explicitly states in Romans chapter 9 that his care is for his kinsmen according to the flesh. And then he goes on to say that not all of those in Israel are of Israel. And then he goes on to compare. He goes on to contrast Jacob and Esau. And he describes the Israelites as vessels of mercy in Romans chapter 9. And he describes the Edomites as vessels of destruction in Romans chapter 9, verses 22 through 33. In Romans chapter 9, he explains the reason for the division among the first century Judeans, which is also evident in many passages elsewhere, such as in Revelation. Revelation 2.9 and 3.9. Revelation 2.9. I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are wealthy. And the blasphemy from those saying for themselves to be Judeans, and they are not, but they are a congregation or a synagogue of Satan, the adversary. Revelation 3.9. Behold, I shall give those from, the, from of the synagogue of Satan the congregation of the adversary, saying for themselves to be Judeans, and they are not. But they are liars. Behold, I shall make them that they shall come, and they shall worship before your feet, and they know, and that they may know that I have loved you, meaning the Christian Greek people who are being addressed in that message to the churches in Revelation 3.9.
Being in part the descendants of the Canaanites, the Edomites of Judea were also the descendants of the Rephaim. They were the descendants of, of the Kenites. They were the descendants of the children of Cain. Christ proved that in Luke, in, in Luke chapter 11, where he told them that they were responsible for the blood of all the prophets, starting with Abel. Only the descendants of Cain could be responsible for the blood of Abel. This is why the Edomite Herod was representative of the great red dragon, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which is explained in Revelation chapter 12, who attempted to kill the infant Christ. For the Kenites and the Rephaim, the descendants of the fallen angels, the Kenites and the Rephaim are the descendants of the serpent and the fallen angels of Genesis. They are all the same entity. They can be tracked through the Old Testament. For this reason, Yahshua Christ told those Judeans whom he reproved in John 8.44 that ye are of your father the devil, and you believe me not because you are not of my sheep, John 10.26. Note that he did not say ye are not of my sheep because ye did not believe. That's what the church teaches. Christ said, you believe not because you are not my sheep. They were not his sheep in the first place. They were never his sheep. They were never Israelites. The Jews, the non-believing anti-Christian Judeans, were never his sheep. Indeed, the Bible and history show that they are the Canaanites and Edomites of Scripture, the enemies of ancient Israel, cursed and hated by Yahweh our God. For over 2,100 years now, they have pretended to be Israel. Paul separates the Judeans into two groups, vessels of mercy and vessels of destruction. Just as the prophet Jeremiah separated the inhabitants of Jerusalem into two groups, good and bad figs. In Jeremiah chapter 24. Of the bad figs, Jeremiah prophesied that they were to be, and I quote, removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all the places whither I shall drive them. Likewise, Yahshua Christ, surely alluding to those words which were repeated by Jeremiah, standing in Jerusalem in 32 AD and prophesying about the coming destruction of the city and the temple, which happened in 70 AD, is recorded as having said, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. Luke 21, verses 23 through 24. And Christ said this speaking of the unbelieving Judeans, the bad fig, not my sheep, Edomite Jews. This diaspora, which happened after 70 AD, was not the dispersion of the people of God who were once known as Israel. This diaspora was the dispersion of the enemies of God. The diaspora, the, the, the dispersion of the people of God happened centuries before this in the Assyrian and the Babylonian deportations. 
the diaspora of the enemies of God happened here after 70 AD, after the destruction of Jerusalem. That's the diaspora. That, that's the leading away captive into all nations for a reproach and a proverb, for a taunt and a curse. That's what Jeremiah is talking about. That's what Christ corroborated. That's what Christ told us was going on in 70 AD, as he foresaw. So any diaspora of Jews after 78, after the crucifixion, according to Christ in Luke chapter 21, is the diaspora of his enemies, not of his sheep. That happened 700 years before. And Ezekiel chapter 34 explains it. Ezekiel chapter 34 says of the lost sheep of Israel that my sheep have wandered over all the mountains. From these people, from this diaspora in 70 AD and thereafter, descend, in part because they're the most mixed-race people in the world, the Jews of today, who have mingled themselves with people from many other races along the way, yet who have kept their religion as a common bond, except for those converts to Romish Catholicism in certain places in the Middle Ages, especially in Sicily, Italy, and Spain. For nearly 40 years from the crucifixion in 32 AD to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the gospel was the filter which separated many of the good figs from the bad. Most of the good Judeans, as Josephus attests, had fled Jerusalem before its destruction. Christians, of course, had the warnings of Christ, and so they would have done just that. The Edomites did not have the warnings of Christ, or they scoffed at them and rejected them, and they stayed and fought the Romans. It is often claimed by the Jews of today that the Romans killed Christ, being responsible for the crucifixion. And both the Romish and many Protestant churches today often parrot this nonsense. But at Luke 19.27, at the end of the parable of the ten pounds, as it is often called, we find Christ saying, but those mine enemies, but those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, Bring them hither and slay them before me. There, his enemies, those who rejected his rule, those who scoffed at him, they are identified. In John chapter 19, verse 15, we see the Jews exclaim, We have no king but Caesar. They are his enemies, and they admitted it with their own mouths. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 25, the Jews exclaimed, His blood is on us and on our children. That's something we, that, that we just don't understand today, is that your parents can leave a curse on you. And in the eyes of God, that curse sticks. Just as your parents can leave a blessing upon you, and the, uh, in the eyes of God, the blessing sticks. 
After the crucifixion, the apostles clearly fixed the murder of Christ on the people of Judea and never on the Romans. It can be seen clearly in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, which I have already quoted. In Acts chapter 4, verses 8 and 10. In Acts chapter 7, verses 52 and 53. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, which I've already quoted. It's reported in Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, that after hearing healing a lame man and being interrogated for it by the Judeans, Peter says to them, and I quote, Leaders of the people and elders, if we this day are examined for the benefit of the sick man by what manner he was delivered or healed, it must be known by all of you, now he's talking to the leaders of the Judeans and the people and elders of the Judeans, it must be known by all of you and by all the people of Israel that in the name of Christ, the Nazorian, whom you crucified, whom Yahweh raised from among the dead, by him, he, meaning the healed man, stands before you healthy. Peter puts the blame for the crucifixion right on the people of Judea. At Acts chapter 7, verses 52 to 53, the words of the martyr Stephen are recorded thus. And I quote from 52. Which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted and they killed those who announced beforehand concerning the coming of the just one? of whom you have now been betrayers and murderers. They reveal who they are through their actions. Who have received the law by arrangement of messengers, yet have not kept it. The Judean nation, and we know that they are consisting of many Canaanites and Edomites, the Judean nation and not the Romans were responsible for the crucifixion of Christ and the apostles attributed the blame to all of them. Now, as Peter says, this was done through wicked hands in Acts chapter 2, meaning those of the Edomites, all those who continued to deny Christ, remain responsible for his death. The Romans did not kill Christ. The record is clear that the Judeans, those who were called Jews today, killed Christ. The Romans were merely the hammer in the hand of the Jews. Can a murderer blame his crime on the weapon? It is also clear that while many good people in Judea went along with the crucifixion, they were merely following along with the masses and the propaganda of their leaders. We see our people do that all the time today. At that time, their leaders were the Pharisees and Sadducees. The great number of those Pharisees and Sadducees were Edomite Jews. We see that all the time in the discourse of Christ. Not his sheep. They are not his sheep. Over and over again, we see indications in the Gospel and in the book of Acts that they are not Israelites. Which is why Paul is only concerned for his kinsmen according to the flesh, the ones who are really Israelites. He had no concern for the Edomites, for the vessels of destruction. For this reason, Paul explains that those who deny Christ shall receive much greater punishment than those who transgress the laws of Moses. And that God shall indeed take vengeance upon the Christ deniers. Hebrews chapter 10, 
verses 28 through 30, and I quote, or I'm sorry, 26 through 30, and I quote, for our doing wrong voluntarily, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, no longer for wrongdoing does a sacrifice remain, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fervent fire destined to devour the opposition. One who sets aside the law of Moses without compassion by two or three witnesses is put to death. How much more severe a punishment do you suppose he who is trampled upon the Son of God would be accounted worthy? And who regarded as common the blood of the covenant in which he was sanctified. These people all rejected Christ. And who insulted the spirit of that favor. For we know the saying, vengeance is mine, I will requite. And again, Yahweh will judge his people. A fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of Yahweh who lives. So if the real Israelites who kept the side of the Edomites face that punishment, and Paul is writing to the real Israelites of Judea, imagine the punishment the Edomites face and the blame that they share and the guilt that they share. The Jews claiming to be the people of God, and we know that they're lying, they bring much greater punishment upon themselves even if they are, according to Paul's words here. Yet in reality, they are not. They are rather the synagogue of Satan, the assembly of the adversary, or the opposition. They are the opposition Paul talks about here. Paul says again in verse 27, that these people that reject Christ, for them no longer for wrongdoing does a sacrifice remain, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fervent fire destined to devour the opposition. All of the children of Satan, all of the children of the adversary, all of the Canaanites and Edomites, all of those born in opposition to God, because antichrists are born. The gospel was meant to expose the true enemies of God. Yes, there were probably some good people in their foolishness who fell by the wayside. But the gospel was meant to expose the true enemies of God. In another oft-repeated Jewish claim, they justify their religion, which is not the valid Hebrew religion, for indeed Christianity is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the Jews justify their religion by claiming that there is more than one path to God, something you won't find in the Bible, and that these different paths are reflected by the various religions of the world. They use this as a ploy to fool naive Christians into evil ecumenism. Yet the words of Joshua Christ clearly refute this. For in John chapter 14, verse 6, he is recorded as having said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. So much for the world's other religions. At John 10, Verses 7 through 9, he says, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door, but 
By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. And so it is evident that there is only one path to Yahweh, our God. And it is also evident that only his sheep pass through that door. Furthermore, Paul, in his epistle to the Hebrews at 1.6, chapter 1, verse 6, says in reference to Christ, and let all the angels of God worship him. That let reflects the imperative verb in Greek, all the angels, all the messengers of God must worship Christ. An angel is a messenger, the meaning of the Greek word. If one claims to be a messenger of God and does not worship Christ, then one's religion is vain, and its promises are empty. Throughout the Old Testament are prophecies and promises concerning Christ. Those who claim to find a religion in it and yet are not Christians are frauds who even deceive themselves. The Jews are foremost among these frauds. They are frauds if they're not Christians. The Greek word anathema means accursed. A valid argument may be presented that the word maranatha, found at 1 Corinthians 16.22, is actually a phrase. It means a rebel to be destroyed. The interpretation derives mara from the Strong's Hebrew Dictionary number 4754, which is a rebel, and natha from 5421, which is a verb, which means to destroy, or in the passive, to be destroyed. Maranatha means a rebel to be destroyed. It can even be argued that this interpretation is more defensible than those of the mainstream scholars, where there is disagreement in the lexicons even as how the phrase Maranatha should be parsed. And the words are derived are not, so far as I have seen, they are not ever identified precisely. Maranatha means a rebel to be destroyed. Nevertheless, mainstream scholars insist that the phrase means, O oh Lord, come, or something similar. Even though this is forced into the context of the preceding words, rather it is quite evident that 1 Corinthians 16.22 should read, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, he must be accursed, anathema, a rebel to be destroyed, Maranatha. The reading of the phrase is much more natural in the context of the words which precede, and it is quite legitimate, being derived from identifiable Hebrew words. And such are the Edomite Jews. They are accursed by God. Paul calls them vessels of destruction in Romans chapter 9. Yet we, not, we need not rely upon this one statement having to decipher the enigmatic phrase and argue over its meaning to see that Christians must reject Jews, for there are many other statements left to us by the apostles which instruct us in like manner. In the first epistle of John, at John 2, 22 and 23, we read this. Who is a liar but he that denies that Yahshua is the Christ? He is the Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Whosoever denies the Son, the same has not the Father. Christ told the Jews who were disputing with him, you were of your father, the devil. 
And in the historical context of John's writing, the apostle can only be describing the Judeans who rejected Christ, whom we know as Jews today. We know their mixed-race descendants as Jews today. John continues in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, where he says, Behold, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Yahshua Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Yahshua Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. In other words, admitting that he is the anointed one. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come even now. It is already in the world. Naive Catholics and other adherents to the mainstream sects await some great Antichrist, whom they believe to be some future beastly ruler, often depicted with science fiction quality abilities. The truth is that the Antichrists have walked among us for thousands of years already. Many of them today are called Jews. Not all of them, but most of them. Some of them are Arabs. Some of them, well, they're, they're mingled in with the peoples of Europe. Their spirits are not from God, but are rather from their own father, the devil, John eight forty four. This is so because they are truly bastards. They are corruptions of God's original creation. That was the original sin. That was the sin of the fallen angels who left their first estate. And according to the apocryphal literature, bastards are the source of all evil spirits. Catholics are deceived in thinking that evil spirits come first and then evil things happen. Actually, bastards come first and evil spirits proceed from them. John speaks of them further in 1 John chapter 5, verse 10, where he says, He that believes on the Son of God has witness in himself. He that does not believe, he does not, he that does not believe God has made him a liar because he believes not the record that God gave of his son. The Jews, by rejecting Christ, esteem God to be a liar. Should Christians embrace the Jews? Of course not. It's absolutely anti-Christian to embrace the Jews. We're demanded by Christianity not to embrace the Jews. If we embrace the Jews, how the hell could we call ourselves Christians? In John's second epistle, the apostle reinforces the instruction that those who deny Yahshua Christ are the Antichrist. At verse 7, where he says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Yahshua Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an Antichrist. So we see that the Jews are liars, deceivers, and antichrists. In the same epistle at verse 9, John says, Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. 
He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. John proceeds to instruct his readers how to treat those who reject Christ at verses 10 and 11. And he says, If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, meaning the doctrine of Christ, receive him not into your house. We should have never opened the doors of our nations to the Jews. Receive him not into your house. Neither bid him Godspeed. Now, this is important because to bid somebody Godspeed is simply to greet them. To bid somebody Godspeed is archaic language, meaning simply to greet a fellow man, to wish him well. Receive him not, if there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, meaning the doctrine of Christ. Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that bids him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. Christians should certainly not embrace Jews. Christians shouldn't even greet Jews, and Christians shouldn't have Jews in their nation. Paul makes a similar statement to 2 John 9, 9-11. While discussing sound Christian doctrine in 1 Timothy, Chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. If any man teaches otherwise and consents not to wholesome words, the words of our Lord, Yahshua Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, Whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupted minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. So Christians must reject Jews. It's not a question. Christians must reject Jews. According to all of the founding Christian documents. Otherwise, they are not Christians. If you accept Jews, you're a Jew. You're not a Christian, period. In the first century, the Jews organized, used, the Jews used the organized religious sects, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to oppose Christianity. And through these, their power to persuade the Roman authorities against it. Unto this day, the Jews continue to oppose Christianity, both with their own cries of religious persecution and with the secular organizations which they have founded and operate, such as the ACLU and the ADL, among others, which employ once Christian court systems in order to oppress Christianity. While these groups seek to extinguish Christianity, Christian morals, and Christian ideals. Christians suffer these groups. They engage with them. They even make donations to them, and they embrace the Jews who support them. 
This is contrary to the advice of Paul, who warned Christians to let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience, being not ye therefore partakers with them, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Get lost, you boy. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6, 7, and 11. Paul also said, Only let your conversation be as it becomes the gospel of Christ, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries. Never fear the Jew, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29. The token of perdition comment shows that these adversaries of Christ are those vessels of destruction which Paul discussed in Romans chapter 9, which are the Edomite Jews, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 9. Paul discusses them again in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. These are indeed the antichrists of John's epistles. For a few verses before this, in Philippians 3.2, Paul warned, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, meaning those who were circumcised. And the lines which followed show that by concision, Paul means those practitioners of Judaism who insisted that men be circumcised in the flesh. Not all Judeans who in the first century converted to Christianity did so with sincerity. Rather, often they played the infiltrator, attempting to subvert the gospel. They do it to Christian identity today. Peter and Jude both warned about these. 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude verses 14 through 16. Paul tells of them again at Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, where he calls them false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Yahshua, that they might bring us into bondage, since they attempted to compel Titus to be circumcised. And that's what Paul's talking about. Today they have compelled most American males to be circumcised through trickery. And they do that so they can hide among us more easily and seduce our women. Elsewhere, Paul warned the elders of the Ephesians that after my departing, grievous wolves enter in among you, sparing not the flock. This is why John warned in his epistle, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. 
These false prophets in the first century, they're only Jews. There are no others. The pagans are an, an, an object of conversion. They're not the discussion here. Everything touted as doctrine must be measured against the entire Bible. And true Christians must reject the Jews. Always. There are no exceptions. The false brethren were most interested in gaining control over men, as we see Paul discussing Galatians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. They were more interested in gaining control over men than in being true Christians themselves. And those whom they couldn't subvert, they persecuted. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapters 2, verses 14 through 15, For you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Yahshua. For you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both kill the Lord Yahshua and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. Paul tells us who killed Christ right here. The Judeans killed Christ. How could they escape the blame for that today? They can't escape the blame for that ever. And they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the nations that they might be preserved to save up, to fill up their sins always. For the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost, and it shall. The problems in Thessalonica, which Paul, refer, which Paul refers to here, are described in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, where it is evident that the common Thessalonians were incited to act against the Christians by certain Jews. They do the same thing in our society today. They, they, they rabble-rouse, they agitate. They do the same thing today in our society that they did in Thessalonica 1950 years ago. Early Christian history shows that it was the Jews who were behind all the persecutions of Christians. The Jews put the Romans up. They incited the Romans to persecute Christians. And Tertullian, the early Christian bishop of Carthage, who wrote about 180, 180 AD, perhaps, to about 210 AD, Tertullian attests of this in his apology in chapter 21 or in, in chapter 21 section 25 however not being able to stifle Christianity from the outside history is replete with examples of Jews who converted to Christianity only to later subvert it with false doctrine from within the results of this continue to plague mainstream Christian sects to this day, especially Roman Catholicism. It also now plagues Christian identity. Why don't Christians actually follow the New Testament? Why do they disregard all of these admonitions and warnings, and why do they embrace the Jews? Today, all of Christian civilization is in a state of drastic decline because we have embraced the Jews. Here in America, the Jews, who have been here in significant numbers for only about 130 years, the Jews have led us into racial segregation, 
I'm sorry, they have led us into racial integration and they have led us into a world full of drugs and pornography. Our cities are destroyed. Our economy ever teetering on the verge of collapse. Inflation of the money supply is absolutely rampant. Our formerly world-leading manufacturing base is gone, along with much of our middle class. Most of our technology has been freely transferred to our enemies. Jewish Marxist ideology has become the standard throughout all of our academia, and now it holds the center ring in our political circus. If one doesn't believe that the Jews are indeed responsible for all of this, then one must investigate just who it is running all of the major banking houses, such as Goldman Sachs and Solomon Brothers. Who runs Morgan Stanley? Who runs Citibank? Simon Wheel? Along with the hedge funds and the holding companies, such as KKR, which are really just corporate raiders with improved public relations, that's all they are, they're corporate raiders. All those holding companies and hedge funds are corporate raiders. They destroy corporations from the inside out. One must investigate how such a large percentage of positions on the White House staff, and this was true in the Bush administration when I wrote it, and it's true in the Obama administration today. The houses of Congress and their staffs and all of the cabinet departments are filled by Jews. And it does not matter which party is inspected. There are Jews everywhere. And they have the same Jewish policies in every facet of politics and life, no matter what party they claim to belong to. In addition, all of the most powerful media companies, Disney, Time Warner, Viacom, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, all of the others are owned or managed by Jews. And people love to say, oh, Rupert Murdoch's not a Jew. Well, well he probably is. And if he's not, Peter Chernin's a Jew. All of his top executives are Jews. Like Judea at the time of Christ, most of all, most all of the so-called upper crust of American society is now occupied by the Antichrist Edomite Jews. I quoted some passages at the beginning of this presentation explaining that Christ called the Jews the princes of this world, explaining that Satan claimed power over all the kingdoms of the world in his time. And that's true then, and it's true today. Because Christians don't understand the money power behind the Jews and the way they use that and manipulate that and manipulate their way into all of our governments and control. They have controlled every single empire in world history from behind the scenes through the power of trade and through the power of finance that we really don't understand as well as they do. And we never will because we don't have that guile. It's not that we're not intelligent. We're much more intelligent than they are, but they are much more cunning. In the Bible, in Judges chapter 9, it teaches us that the scum rises to the top 
It always does. Christians very naively pity Jews when they cry persecution, while at the same time Jews devour the substance of the Christians. Those whom, as Paul says, might bring us into bondage, they've done so. They've done so indeed through the impressive, oppressive laws and taxes. Those who, Paul says, mind earthly things have, through fraud and deceit, come to possess all of our earthly things. When will Christians ever start actually practicing what it is that they profess to believe? Only when Christians start practicing Christianity can our nation and the other white nations of the world who suffer in like manner ever begin to be healed. The first step to repentance is the recognition of sin. The inherent evil of the Jews in history goes far beyond the crucifixion of Christ. The Jews have been crucifying Christ every day since the crucifixion. For Christ himself said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, that truly I say to you, for whomever of the least of my brethren have you done one of these things, you have done them to me. The book of Acts as well as the early Christian apologists, Tertullian and Minucius Felix, all blamed the Jews for the early persecution of Christians. These persecutions endured over 300 years and resulted in the horrible executions of thousands of innocent Christian men and women. When the Jews were virtually excluded from Christendom by the Byzantine emperors, it was the Jews who brought the Arabs against Spain and France and Italy in the West. The Jews put the Arabs up to the invasion of Spain, and they made their way into France, and they took over Sicily and parts of southern Italy. It was the Jews that were behind the Mongol conquest of the great cities, the great ancient cities of Eastern Europe. Martin Luther wrote about that. It was the Jews who were behind the Turkic invasions and the destruction of Byzantine Greece and the Balkans and once white, once Christian Anatolia. The Jews were behind much of the oppression of Christendom, which was conducted by the medieval Roman church. The Jews were behind the Jesuits. The Jesuits was an order founded by Converso Jews. The Jesuits were the impetus of the Thirty Years' War. They started it. They instigated it. They put the Roman Pope up to it. The Thirty Years' War resulted in the complete destruction of over half of Germany, of much of Bohemia, modern Czech, the modern Czech Republic. Following that horrible war, it was the Jewish Jesuits and the Freemasons who conspired with them, who were behind all the wars and revolutions in Europe right up to the First World War. Jewish bankers and speculators instigated the American so-called Civil War, killing off over half a million white Christian men. Marxism and Bolshevism are completely Jewish in origin and nature. Marxism and Bolshevism are responsible for the deaths of over 100 million white Christians mostly in Europe and, 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 and Russia, since the First World War. A hundred million white Christians died because of Marxism and Bolshevism 
and the shenanigans of the Jewish bankers since the First World War. The Jews were behind the French Revolution. And during the French Revolution, they killed the priests and nuns. The Jews were behind the Bolshevik Revolution, where they closed the churches and they killed the priests and nuns. The Jews were behind the Spanish Civil War, which was really a failed communist takeover. And whatever town the communists got into, they killed all the priests and all the nuns. Whatever true Christians think about priests and nuns doesn't matter. The Jews are nevertheless proven to be forever the enemies of Christ and the enemies of white civilization. These are only some of the major crimes perpetrated by the Jews throughout history, where the full list is endless. And now the Jews control Europe. The Jews control all of Europe. And they are not being challenged. The proof that the Jews control all of Europe, and if anyone wants to call in on this program, I'll accept calls. The proof that the Jews control all of Europe is now obviously clear. The Jews have established their own separate parliament. And it meets in the same building as the European Union Parliament. And they call themselves ministers of the European Jewish Parliament. They've given themselves titles. And they meet in the same building. This is, to use one of their own words, real chutzpah. This is not a civic association. It's a control commission with their first meeting, which happened just last week. They have already demanded that David Cameron fire an appointed British official simply because she vociferated support for the cause of Palestinians in Gaza. Her name is Ashton. I have it right here. It's reported by Arut Shiva, which is a Jewish media outlet. European Jews petitioned for Catherine Ashton's resignation. The European Jewish Union and the European Jewish Parliament asked Prime Minister David Cameron to propose and actively pursue the termination of Catherine Ashton's term of office with the immediate effect. Why? Because she expressed concern for what the Jews were doing to Palestinians in Gaza. That's why. The Jewish parliament has labeled that as anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism was a crime punishable by death in Soviet Russia. Soviet Russia was itself a Jewish monster. The new Jewish parliament is really the new pan-European Knesset. It's a continental Soviet government in everything but name. The Jews have had an active plan to destroy Christianity and white European civilization, and they have been implementing that plan openly for over 200 years now. Any resistance to that plan is called anti-Semitism, as if wanting to maintain one's own culture and values were inherently evil. The Jews themselves have come to define anti-Semitism by the way they use the word as anti-Jewish supremacy. That's what it really means. In that sense, I'm proud to be an anti-Semite, even if by race 
white Europeans are the world's only true Semites. The Jews aren't Semites. They're Canaanites. There is nothing that the Jews do not lie about. Nothing. The earliest articles I've read concerning this new Jewish-European parliament are from August 2011. And this one's from the Jewish news agency, ynetnews.com. It's entitled, Europe's Jews to Have Their Own Parliament. The idea, and I quote, the idea of the creation of a European Jewish parliament was envisioned by Shimon Peres, the president of the State of Israel, when several years ago he called for the establishment of such an organization. The Israeli news outlet, Aretsheva, announced after its first meeting that the new Jewish parliament fights anti-Semitism. However, in reality, the audacity of Jews and their belief that they have a right to control every non-Jewish nation is the cause of anti-Semitism. And they have asserted that right throughout their history from Roman times. Anti-Semitism is in reality anti-Jewish supremacism. For a white man to be what the Jews call an anti-Semite is to be a true Christian. If the president of China, if the the head of the Communist Party in China made a suggestion that all the Chinese people elect their own parliament and that they're going to meet in the U.S. Congressional Building, That would be an occupation. That would be a sign of occupation. That would not be a civic association, right? Well, if Shimon Perez suggests or calls for the establishment of a European Jewish parliament, and all of a sudden it's formed, it's elected over the Internet, which is what they did, and they're meeting in the same building in Brussels that the European Union Parliament meets in, that's not a civic association. That's an occupation. How could white people be so damn stupid not to see that? So the Jews planned long in advance to found their own European Parliament and to house it in the same government building that the Constitutional European Union conducts its business? And then they have no obstacles in putting such a nefarious plan into effect? Is it not obvious that the Jews are controlling all of Europe? They claim this is a non-governmental organization. Yet, the Jews have a proven track record of turning non-governmental organizations into quasi-governmental organizations. In the United States, the ADL and APAC are certainly proof of that. While it is evident throughout history, once again this proves to us that the Jews are indeed the dragon from which the beast empires of the earth have derived and still derive their power. For the Jewish money, power, and the Jewish media control them all today, America and Europe. Now they have stepped completely out of the shadows. The Jew is completely out of the closet. No more smoke-filled back rooms. We'll just have our own parliament and show the dumbass goyim that we're in control 
because in our first meeting, we're going to start pushing around their governments. We're going to demand that anti-Semites resign from European governments. That's incredible. Christians need only to recognize the facts before they could ever begin to properly combat their own enslavement. Let's talk about Barbara Spector. Barbara Spector, she was a delegate of the International Jewish Leadership Delegation to the United Nations. I have the paper. It'll be linked on this podcast. She calls herself the founding director, European Institute for Jewish Studies in Sweden. She's gone on record as promoting the destruction of Christian Europe. Well, I have links that show that Barbara Spector is tied to the international Raoul Wallenberg Foundation. The Wallenbergs are a family of Jewish bankers and corporate raiders who have come to control most all of Sweden's major corporations over the past 50 or so years. And they control them all. The Wallenbergs, even though they don't even own 10% of the stock in any of these corporations, and, and I read a lengthy article about them in the, in, in the Wall Street Journal about 12 years ago, they have come to control the boards of directors of Ericsson, Electrolux, Volvo, every single major Swedish corporation, maybe about a dozen of them. The Wallenbergs control them. Barbara Spector is connected to the Wallenbergs. This is from a television news program promoting her filth, and she is a pig. The reporter says, and I quote, As we heard, there are people in Sweden who support Israel and have a deep sense of the injustice of the present situation. It's these people who give hope to those who still believe that things will get better here, one of them is Barbara Lerner Spector, a former American who made Aliyah. Aliyah is the migration to the spurious, spurious Israeli state in Palestine. And then 10 years ago, with the help of the government of Sweden, I wonder if she did that through her Wallenberg connection, eh? Set up a non-denominational institute of Jewish learning with the Greek name of Paideia, which she also calls the European Institute for Jewish Studies in Sweden, here in Stockholm. She believes that the current wave of anti-Semitism in Sweden will pass. It will, as soon as the Jews are converted to ashes. And that Jews have an important role to play in a country undergoing profound change. Well, why is Sweden undergoing profound change? It's undergoing profound change because the Jews have forced it into profound change. Anti-Semitism exists in Sweden because the Jews are forcing change upon Sweden. Spectre then says, agreeing with the program host, and I quote, I think there is a resurgence of anti-Semitism because at this point in time, Europe has not yet learned how to be multicultural, meaning race mixed. And I think we, meaning the Jews, are going to be part of the throes of that transformation which must take place. Europe is not going to be the monolithic societies, meaning racially pure-blooded nations, that they once were in the last century. Jews are going to be at the center of that, 
It's a huge transformation for Europe to make. They are now going into a multicultural mode, and Jews will be resented because of our leading role. But without that leading role and without that transformation, Europe will not survive. And that's the end of my quote of this Jewish pig. This Jewish pig has evidently unilaterally decided, and we know she didn't do it on herself, but she sure as hell sounds like it in her rhetoric. She has unilaterally, unilaterally decided for the Swedish people that they must become race mixed in order to survive and that she will lead the way with the race mixing. This is the attitude of the Jews in Europe. This is what she said in her interview. And she admits that that is the cause of anti-Semitism. Now, Europe has a parliamentary control commission full of Jews who think just like she does. Absolutely. And they're right out in the open. And nobody seems to mind. I haven't seen one article in opposition to this. Not yet. Uh, I mean, maybe they're out there somewhere, but I haven't seen them. In the Middle Ages, it was the Jews that brought the Arabs, the Mongols, and the Turks into Europe, and we fought them off. Now they're doing it again, and we let them do it. Uh, I mean, this greater... That there's a greater scope of biblical prophecy in play here. This is our, our punishment, our trial from God for our disobedience. I'll be talking about that at length next Friday in my presentation of the prophecy of Joel, part two. However, that doesn't mean we have to like it. We, have, we can't repent until we know we're being punished for our sins. If we don't know we're being punished for sin, how the hell are we going to repent as a people? And that's the message that we need to spread throughout the, 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 to every white man and woman that we see. We worship the Jew, and we get blessed with Arabs, niggers, chinks, and, and every other foul squat monster you could imagine and we get overrun with them because we bless the Jew. Jewish antipathy towards Christians over 40 generations proves what we call two seed line. It proves that the problems with the Jew are genetic, without a doubt. And every generation, every time they get caught, every time they, they get into trouble, they fool us with crocodile tears and with false humility. It's the Jew, it's the dragon, it's the serpent, it's the reptile. That's how we get the phrase crocodile tears. Our language doesn't lie to us. Our medieval ancestors knew a hell of a lot better than we do. They fool us with crocodile tears and false humility. They come to us on their knees, and they end up on our shoulders. They've been doing that for 7,000 years. 
So when the hell are we going to finally wake up to that? As a people, that's the message we need to spread. Okay, thank you for listening. That's my presentation tonight. Should Christians embrace the Jews? Hell no. No, we should not. I'll be here next Friday with the Prophecy of Joel, Part 2. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for being here. God bless.